Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. Beauties, we have a power-packed show that is going to upgrade your brain health by the time we are done. Seriously, we are getting the download on how to make your brain younger, sharper, more vibrant, and much less prone to dementia. And we're getting it from a total pro. My guest today is Dr. Annie Fenn, a physician, chef, and the author of The Brain Health Kitchen, Preventing Alzheimer's Through Food. This science-based cookbook and care manual for the brain is designed to help fend off Alzheimer's and other dementias while still preparing delicious food. If you wanna be proactive about your brain health, if you wanna stock your pantry with brain health superfoods, or if you are craving fresh recipe inspo like creamy cannellini bean soup with frizzled sage and breadcrumbs, or caramelized apple and quinoa pancakes, stick around. We have a delicious, nutritious, fun, and fabulous show on deck. Welcome, Annie. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here, Katie. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited. I love nothing more than opening up a great cookbook. It's so fun to be able to connect with the person who created it. I've got so many questions. And my first is you open your book by saying that you are a physician who has always loved food, but you didn't choose to become a culinary educator and voice for Alzheimer's prevention. Instead, Alzheimer's chose you. Can you share with our listeners what started you on this journey of sharing food education for brain health? Oh, sure. So, um, yeah, my path from physician to chef is not exactly um, typical, but I think it's I think it's what happens when you follow a passion, even though you don't know exactly where that's going to take you. That's sort of what happened to me. I was an obstetrician gynecologist practicing for 20 years. Uh, the last eight years of my practice, I was focused exclusively on menopausal medicine, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Um, but there was some point about 20 years in where I just felt like I wanted to make a change. Um, perhaps being a physician was just too unhealthy of a lifestyle for me. I was suffering from not getting enough sleep, not really seeing my kids enough, and they were growing up really quickly. So um, I decided to retire from medicine, and I was 45 at the time. And I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do, but I'd always been a passionate home cook. And so, you know, one of the things that I'd always wanted to do was go to culinary school. So that's what I did. I went to culinary school. I started teaching healthy cooking classes in my community because honestly, a lot of the problems that I saw, even in OBGYN, I felt like the root cause was from poor lifestyle and nutrition choices. Like a lot of the surgeries and medications that I prescribed you know, could probably be prevented if people were taking better care of themselves. And I really felt this all came down to food. So I started to focus on food, healthy eating, how to make it easy, how to make it delicious. And then somewhere a few years into my culinary journey, um, my mom was diagnosed with an early stage of Alzheimer's disease called mild cognitive impairment, which went on to become Alzheimer's. And, you know, nothing makes a doctor do more of a deep dive into the science than when something happens to a family member. So I, I made it my business to learn everything there was about slowing down Alzheimer's or even preventing it. And I found this huge link between nutrition and lifestyle that back in 2013, 14, no one really knew about. So that's why I decided to focus on 
the Brain Health Kitchen, launch it as a cooking school, because what better way to learn healthy lifestyle and food tips than in a cooking class situation? I just wanted to make it fun for people. Um, and that's what I've been doing ever since 2015. And we're so grateful that you do, because this is something that, you know, it, it touches so many lives and it impacts so many people who, you know, who have loved ones who are experiencing dementia and Alzheimer's. And, you know, I'm sorry that your own personal story is what put you on this path, but we are fortunate that you've created this incredible body of work that the rest of us can benefit from. I adored this book. There are so many drool-worthy recipes in it, but you also start off with a lot of the sort of science around food, around brain health, and you identify in the book uh, sort of 10 food groups with powerful neuroprotective properties. Uh, as a starting point, can you share with our listeners what, what the link is that you found between Alzheimer's and food? Oh, absolutely. So even back in 2015, there was a solid amount of data in my medical journals. These are scientific peer-reviewed papers, you know, published in standard journals throughout the world, showing that certain dietary patterns um, actually can slow down brain aging. And when you think about Alzheimer's and also other neurodegenerative diseases, such as Parkinson's or vascular dementia, um, it's really an accelerated form of aging of the brain. Of course, all of our brains are aging, some at faster rates than others. So to find that food was actually instrumental in slowing this down um, was very exciting to me and to see that the science was solid. So one of the one of the dietary patterns that has been most studied is the Mediterranean diet. And that should be of no surprise to anyone. It's very famously good for you. It's always a top-rated diet for health for many, many reasons. Um, but back in the you know early 2010s or so, scientists were starting to look at the Mediterranean diet through the lens of brain health. By then, we'd already demonstrated that it reduces cardiovascular disease, like following the Mediterranean diet reduces heart attacks and strokes and things like that. And then researchers started to say, well, if it's so good for your heart, which we know is an important component of brain health, then why don't we look at it through brain-specific criteria? And that is where the 10 brain-healthy food groups come, came from. It comes from this study called the MIND Diet Study, the M-I-N-D Diet Study from Rush University, published in 2015. A follow-up trial was published in 2021. Um, and this basically showed that there are 10 brain-healthy food groups that can protect your brain from Alzheimer's disease and reduce the risk by as much as 53%, which is astounding, right? And there's also a list of foods that can accelerate brain aging, foods that you should limit or avoid for healthy brain. Ooh, we're going to explore all of these. So these these 10 sort of food groups with these powerful neuroprotective properties, can you give our listeners a list of what they are? Absolutely. So some of these will be no surprise to anyone and other ones might be, you know, kind of uh, interesting uh, based on, you know, what you may already know about food and health. So the first one is berries. Berries is the only fruit that is mentioned as a brain health food group. And that's because berries has its own body of data to show that it improves memory, reduces Alzheimer's risk, reduces dementia in older adults. So berries is number one. Leafy greens is number two. Now in the Mediterranean diet, if you can picture the Mediterranean pyramid, which I know we've all seen, you know, leafy greens is mixed in with all the vegetables, right? But in the MIND diet, they pull leafy greens out as its own brain food group because it also has its own pile of data to say that it slows down brain aging. So berries, leafy greens, vegetables, beans and legumes, nuts, 
and whole grains. These are the foundational plant-based brain-healthy food groups. In addition, fish and seafood, poultry, extra virgin olive oil is its own food group. It's recommended that that is the primary cooking oil for a brain-healthy diet. And then the 10th one is kind of in flux. In the original studies, they included red wine as a nod to the Mediterranean lifestyle. Um, in subsequent mind diet trial, that was dropped. And in my book, I have my own 10th food group. It's about healthy drinks. And I include coffee, I include tea, things like, you know, what's the difference between green tea versus herb herbal tea and um, in water, which is probably the brain healthiest drink of all. I love that it's so clear, and uh, you know, you you did share that the Mediterranean diet is sort of so famous. It's it's um, wonderful that we've added sort of this new category, the Mind Diet. You know, the foods that you just outlined for us: berries, oranges, you know, pears. We've got leafy greens, green teas. These are things that people love to eat. They're delicious. You've just shared they're good for our brain. Why? What makes these these types of foods so neuroprotective? Well, that was a big question that I was kind of grappling with when I was writing the book. Like, how do you communicate what it is about all these foods that have the commonality being that in studies, they reduce Alzheimer's risk? Um, 53% is astounding, as I mentioned before. Um, so what I did was I came up with something called the four Fs. And the four Fs of brain healthy food is my way of describing what all these things have in common. So number one, they all contain brain friendly fats. Now, there's a lot of talk about, you know, which fats are good for you, which fats you should avoid, but we know what brain-friendly fats are. These are the fats that your brain thrives on. The brain-healthy diet should be primarily monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats with a very small percentage of actual saturated fats and almost no man-made fats or trans fats. Okay, so good fats are good for the brain. So that's our first F. We're going to head into a quick break, but when we come back, I want to pick this up and hear about the other three. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in your day, would you use it to head to yoga, take a nap, read a book, hang with a friend, maybe start a podcast? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. I know I do. I have three kids, two jobs, one puppy, and to be honest, a zillion things on my want to get to list. Here's what I've learned. The best way to squeeze something special into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your busy schedule. Getting started is so easy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash a certain age today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash a certain age. Annie, we're back from the break. We talked about good fats and, and their uh, neuroprotective uh, capacity. What are the other three Fs? So the second F is something that your listeners may or may not have heard of. It's a category called flavonoids, flavonoid-rich foods. Now, flavonoids are plant compounds. They are considered, you know, bioactive substances that have a particular impact on brain health. Flavonoids are basically what make 
plant foods colorful. They are the actual plant pigments in things like like a red bell pepper or green zucchini or purple squash, things like that. So when you eat a lot of different colorful foods, like nutritionists have been telling us for years to eat the rainbow, the reason is these flavonoid compounds pass the blood-brain barrier, get into the brain, and they have particular action in improving memory and and blocking oxidative stress, which causes chronic inflammation in the brain. So flavonoids is an incredibly important body of research now. We're looking at how flavonoid-rich diets can prevent Alzheimer's and dementia, but also how young adults and people at midlife who consume flavonoid-rich diet can have better memory skills. I know we all need more more memory skills, right? Yes. So things <laughs> like executive function, processing speed, working memory. These are things that you know a lot of midlife people struggle with every day. And eating a flavonoid-rich diet may help. Oh, okay, I love this. So that's uh, and by the way, I, I I enjoy eating the rainbow. It, it may have taken me you know several decades to get there, but I'm you know I'm definitely eating the rainbow. So those are so we've done two. We've done healthy fats, right? We've flavonoid. What are um, F's number three and four? So number three is fiber. I think fiber is the magic macronutrient in a brain healthy diet. We know it's important for gut health, and that's a big part of it. You know, a lot of what we've been learning about the, about what is good for brain health comes from the research on the gut microbiome. This is the you know community of trillions and trillions of microbiota that live in your gastrointestinal tract, and it turns out that they are very active in producing certain substances. You know, they might be like hormones or other anti-inflammatory things that actually impact brain health. So we're learning a lot about the gut health um, and how important it is to have a diverse and vibrant number of different microbiota in your gut. And the way you do that is you feed them. They live on fiber, good quality fiber. And what you where you get fiber is from plant foods. That's why the first, you know, six food groups are all fiber-rich foods berries, leafy greens, veg, beans, nuts, whole grains. That's one thing that unites all of these food groups that is the basis of the brain healthy diet is they're all rich in fiber. Mm, I love this. Okay. And and so number four is what? So number four is fit, F-I-T. And what I mean by that is you know, I don't think that there's one way to follow a brain healthy diet. You will hear that you have to be vegan or you have to follow a Mediterranean diet or be pescatarian. Um, and there are merits to all of these dietary patterns in terms of reducing Alzheimer's and helping your memory, et cetera. But I think that the most important thing to think about when you're embarking on eating for your brain health is that this has to be something that makes sense for you. You know, it has to be a, a dietary pattern that fits your life, your budget, whether or not you like to cook. Um, you know, your proclivity for eating certain foods, how you grew up, your ethnic background. To say that the Mediterranean diet is like the best way to eat for brain health really ignores a lot of the other dietary patterns around the world that are traditional, that are probably just as good for brain health. They just haven't been studied. Things like the Latin American heritage diet, the African American heritage diet, the Asian American heritage diet. These dietary patterns, if you line up their food pyramids right next to the Mediterranean one, they are very, very similar in terms of their brain food components. So I think that everyone should probably start by building their own brain health food pyramid. And by, by that, I mean, you know, choosing the foods from the brain healthy food groups that you really love that you like to cook, you like to eat, that fits your budget, all of those things, and then adding in as many as you can. 
Yeah, I, lo- I love this notion too that uh, you you need to pick something that fits your lifestyle, and it just feels more inclusive to pull in these other cultural food traditions. Because you know, I I lived in Japan after college for two years teaching English, and I've really um, developed an affinity for that that food. And I I love Korean food and kimchi and all of these different like miso paste, all these different things that are not necessarily incorporated in a Western or Mediterranean diet, but, but but I've learned over the years from reading recipes about them that are so healthy, they're so good for your, mut, your gut by, you know, iome and all this stuff. So I love this notion of sort of casting a more inclusive, open, um, you know, approach to what you're bringing to your kitchen. I know from yeah, me, yeah I know from absolutely. Me, and, I, and I also wanted to add that you know when I wrote the Brain Health Kitchen book, I I had in mind that I wanted to write it for everyone. Like people, you know, some people are whole food plant based, like they don't need any animal products at all. And so I have recipes in there that are easily veganized or they're already vegan. I wrote it for vegetarians. I wrote it for people that eat meat and eggs and poultry. Um, you know, if you don't eat those foods, you can just eliminate that food group or that chapter. So I really wanted to throw a wide net and make brain healthy eating accessible to everyone. And like you said, just make it really inclusive. Yeah. And, and not only that, but just delicious. I, I'm not kidding when I said I was drooling over some of these recipes. And we're going to get into a few of them in a few minutes. But I do want to um, turn now to the fact that you, you outline that food choices are really only one part of the equation. It's, you know, Yes, what we're putting into our grocery cart, what we're cooking, what we're eating matters. But cooking methods are also have a, a star role to play. right? And you recommend certain cooking methods that are better at preserving nutrients than others. What brain-friendly cooking methods do you recommend for our listeners to preserve optimal nutrition? Well, the mantra for cooking in a brain-healthy way is low and slow. So this gets into the issue of inflammatory particles that we create in foods. For example, we know that ultra-processed foods are bad for us, right? And the reason is scientists are discovering is that they contain a lot of AGEs or advanced glycation end products. These are inflammatory particles that are created in food when you apply high heat, especially in the presence of sugar um, and protein. So think of a piece of barbecue chicken that you put on a really hot grill. You get grill marks on it. You slather it with barbecue sauce. You know, it gets really dark and charry. We already know that that those char marks on food have carcinogenic, you know, materials in them. But now we also know that they contain AGEs. Mm. AGEs actually get into your bloodstream. They pass the blood-brain barrier. They get into the, the brain cells and cause inflammation and, and oxidative stress. They are found to be accumulating in the brain cells of people with Alzheimer's disease. So getting back to cooking, um, my cooking methods are all designed to reduce AGE formation in foods. So low and slow means you don't use high heat, you don't use direct heat, you don't really fry food, except maybe occasionally as a treat. Um, You can barbecue, but I like people to use indirect grilling or have a barrier between your food and the grill. For example, when I barbecue, I use like a cast iron pan, you know, um, or a grill basket or a, a cedar plank, for example, so that the food is not in direct contact with the heat. Um, in my kitchen, I'll use, I'll roast food, but I tend not to cook food over 375 in the oven. And when I'm cooking in a pan, uh, like sauteing or searing, um, I keep the heat at a medium high or, or medium. And so we're talking about braising, right? I mean, when you say that you're low and slow, is this when you're, like, is this like in a crock pot? Or are you doing it over a big, um, kind of one of those big cast iron, you know, skillets with the, the pan over it? How, how do we cook low and slow? 
Well, braising is a fantastic way because whenever you add liquid, it sort of, you know, equalizes all that impact of heat on the food. So if you have a slow cooker, that's great. An Instant Pot is also a really great way to cook, even though it seems counterintuitive with all that high pressure and everything. Um, pressure cooking has been found to preserve nutrients and retain, you know, liquid in the foods, which preserves um, and reduces AGE formation. Um, but you can also cook um, without any liquid at all, just cook it slightly lower temperature. Um, for example, I have a slow roasted salmon recipe in the book. It's one of the most popular recipes. It comes with an avocado butter on top. It's basically salmon that you put in a sheet pan over vegetables and and beans and some other things. Um, but I cook that in a pretty low oven, you know, around 300 degrees. And when you do that, instead of, you know, something at around 400 or 425, what happens is you preserve the help, the, uh, the delicate brain-friendly fats in that fish. There are omega-3 fatty acids in fatty fish like salmon. And these are really important brain health nutrients. Um, but if you overcook your fish, they start to seep out and you don't really get the benefit from that anymore. Okay, smart. I, also, you had me at avocado butter because that sounds amazing. I need to I need to check that out. I thought this book was really eye-opening. You do a lot of myth-busting in it. You share that nightshades, which include tomatoes, bell, you know, bell peppers, eggplants, are anti-inflammatory foods. You actually shared what I thought was a fun fact, that eggplants are actually berries. And you bust this myth, which I have actually read, that nightshades cause inflammation in the body. You say not true. What are some other common myths that you find people, um, you know, believe regarding brain healthy food? Oh, I love busting myths because <laughs> it's not that difficult to do. All you have to do is look at the science, read it, digest it. I translate that to you. Um, there's really no data whatsoever that says that nightshades are bad for everyone. There's always going to be a small percentage of people who react poorly to a certain type of food. Um, so it could be nightshades or anything else. Another really common myth is that grains are bad for the brain. So you, you may notice I mentioned whole grains as one of the brain healthy food groups. Whole grains are actually anti-inflammatory for most people. Now, the way, reason this gets confusing is because there is about 1% of the population that is celiac. These are people that cannot eat gluten or wheat barley type containing foods because it is very inflammatory for them. They have a disease that that cannot process it. And then there's another 3% of people who um, have either an allergy or a sensitivity to gluten or some other component of whole grains. So that's less than 4% of the population. 96% of the rest of the people um, it should be including whole grains in their diet. And in the MIND diet study, the one that put up those great numbers, they actually recommend including whole grains, small portion, three times a day three small portions of whole grains a day. So what, if you were building a brain-friendly uh, plate, you know, what are we putting? We're going to talk about specific recipes in a minute, but what are some generalities? What does a brain-friendly meal look like? Uh, if we were dividing our plate into different portions, we, you've identified sort of 10 food groups. Are we trying to incorporate one, like each meal? Is it throughout a day? Is it throughout a week? What is our, What are our basic numbers? Oh, this is such a great question, Katie, because people get hung up on plate to plate, day to day eating. And I think that's a pitfall for just frustration in terms of your overall dietary pattern. 
if you're following, say, a standard American diet, which we know is a really unhealthy way to eat, which includes a lot of the things on my six foods to limit or avoid, like fast food, fried food, pastries, sweets, dairy, ultra processed foods, sweetened drinks, artificially sweetened drinks, alcohol, things like that, um, then you probably need to change it up a lot. But the way to do that is to eliminate these foods to limit or avoid, and then think about eating on a weekly basis. Okay, so the the brain healthy food groups in the mind diet, which is a great template for learning, um, is looks at including these foods over the course of a week. Okay, um, for example, you know beans and legumes is a is a brain food group, and the recommendation is to have about two or three servings over the course of a week. So you don't have to eat beans every day. But if you don't eat any beans at all, you might want to start introducing them slowly. Other foods you should eat every day, like leafy greens, vegetables, berries, nuts and seeds are something that can be eaten up to four times a week, more if you like them. But four times a week seems to be the, you know, the um, the really good spot where we know it reduces cardiovascular risk and also impacts your brain health. Fish and seafood, two to three servings a week is probably a good a good measure. But if you only have one serving a fish or seafood a week, you're probably going to get enough brain health nutrients from that. Especially if you're picking things like salmon or, you know, like uh, sardines or, you know, anchovies, all of all of which I love. So, I, you know, I feel lucky. Um, yeah, I love this notion of this weekly cadence because it, it makes me think of uh, way back when I was a young mom struggling to get my kids to eat certain things. And I found so much uh, relief when a pediatrician said to me, you know, think about it for over a week. You know, because the struggle with every meal to get them to eat something felt overwhelming. But when I looked at it with a with a sort of a week's you know running room, it, it felt much more manageable. So I'm I'm so happy. It's the exact to... <laughs> same concept as when we were feeding our kids. Um, you I... know, they might have a really bad day. They might have a really bad meal. And if you just let yourself recover from that, that's that's where you start with the brain healthy diet. And when you look at your plate, I mean, unless you're whole food, plant based, vegan, vegetarian. Um, if you're an omnivore and eat pretty much from all the food groups, three quarters of your plate should be plant foods. Great. And this is not vegetables, but they could be, you know, whole grains, beans and legumes, vegetables, leafy greens, things like that. And everything you just outlined feels doable. And when we look at this sort of weekly cadence, it feels, you know, very, very doable. The book is full of so many wonderful practical recommendations for upgrading food that we already eat, which I want all listeners to know. You do not need to learn a, you know, a gazillion new recipes. You share ideas for adding whole grain cornmeal and blackberries and blueberries to update cornbread. I, that, I paid attention to that because my family loves cornbread. We eat a lot. You know, We're in these cold winter ski season months, and we eat a lot of chili, and we eat a lot of cornbread. And we can upgrade things that we're already Making you know, brain healthy food does not yeah. simply need to mean more salmon and blueberries. You offer a lot of you know hearty one pot ideas. Uh, a brothy chicken with white beans, tomato, and pesto had me drooling and caught my eye because I want to add that to my list. What is a winter recipe in this book that you look forward to making every time the temperatures dip? Oh gosh, there's so many. I really love one pot dishes. I mean, I am busy just like all of you and all of your listeners, right? So I'm really trying to find ways to get a hearty, nourishing, brain healthy meal ready for you with minimal prep and minimal time. And sometimes that that means one pot. Um, there is a recipe for um, chili in my book that uses bison and cacao powder. And, you know, I, I add more veggies, of course. So I have some poblano chips 
poblano peppers that you chop up and put in there. So for me, this is a brain healthy upgrade to a common comfort food. And I'm more likely to make like a cashew lime crema to put on top of it than a bunch of shredded cheddar. But, you know, you can kind of ease into the dairy free options and, you know, in the way that you cook. And what are some ideas for starting our day? Because I find, I'm sure I'm like a lot of our listeners, right? When you when you start the day off on the right foot, of like I'm exercising in the morning at yoga class, I'm making better choices throughout the day with what I'm eating. It's just, you know, like a good behavior builds on another. So if we wanted to start our day with a brain-friendly breakfast, what do you recommend? Oh, I'm a big believer in having protein first thing in the day. And even if you skip breakfast, your first meal should be protein rich. So I lean on savory foods for morning foods a lot. Here's something that I make in my family all the time um, is the salsa poached eggs with black beans in the book. And basically I take a can of black beans. I take almond milk or cashew milk. Sometimes I make this from scratch. Sometimes it just comes from the grocery store. And I put that in a skillet and you know get it all sort of saucy so it's sort of like a creamy white sauce with the beans i add a, a jar of green salsa verde and this is an example of how i like to lean on you know minimally processed foods that i think of it there's conveniently healthy like canned beans salsa verde marinara sauce not everything has to be from scratch right but you just have to read labels really carefully when you do shop. Yeah. So the salsa, the almond milk, the beans, I go all into a pot. And then when it's all warm and saucy, you poach eggs right in the sauce. And when those are done, you have your salsa poached eggs. I serve it with sliced avocado, um, some scallions, tortillas if I have them. This is something that we eat all the time in my family. Annie, you're having me over for breakfast. You don't know it yet. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds delicious. Uh, and and speaking another variation of that recipe that uses pepper, red peppers, um, chicken sausage. You know, you can opt out of the sausage part if you want or just use ground chicken or ground turkey. Um, there's a million variations on this recipe that you can make. Yum, yum, and yum. That sounds great. And, and um, you jogged a, a thought when you said, you, you know, you can sometimes use store-bought things. It doesn't all have to be homemade. You know, read your labels carefully. I recently learned of an app, which I, I'm just going to share with listeners. It's called Trash Panda. Um, and it is a label reading app. So when you you can use it, um, if you install it on your phone, you scan the, the um, barcode of any product anywhere. And I've tested it at every store and, you know, uh, Whole Foods or my stop and shop, my local market. When you scan any label, it kind of calls out things to pay attention to. It shares what if there's like, you know, white sugar in it, it shares what's healthy that's in it. And I found it to be really, really useful. It's a quick little shortcut for anyone who wants more information while they're shopping. So I'm putting that out there. Speaking of more information, we've been talking about some of the foods we want to be including in our diet, these sort of 10 neutroprotective superfood groups. But you mentioned there are six food, you know, broad food categories that we should be either avoiding or limiting. Can we talk about that in a little bit more detail now? Absolutely. So in the original Mind Diet study, they had five food groups to limit or avoid. And when you think about these five food groups, uh, fast and fried food, pastries and sweets, cheese, butter, um, red meat. Those were the original five. Uh, you know, they're all very high in saturated fat. They're all very high in these inflammatory particles we've been talking about because they're, you know, largely processed food. And what they did was they limited these in this population of about a thousand people that they studied over five years. And they're basically, by limiting these foods from the diet, they are driving down the sap fat in their diet. 
And that seems to be, you know, one of the secret ingredients of having a brain healthy diet. Like we talked about, it's mostly monounsaturated fats. It's very low in saturated fat. It's all whole foods. It's very low in processed foods. So these are a good example of reducing processed and sat fat foods in your diet. Now, in my book, I changed it a little bit because of new data that has come out since 2015. And there's been a lot of it. Um, and I broke it down to make it a little bit more user-friendly for people. For example, um, fast and fried food. You know, we all know what this is, right? In the Mind Diet study, the recommendation is to eat no more than one meal a day that's fast or fried food. And I would say that, you know, I would eliminate fast food entirely. And fried food, you know, it depends. Every once in a while, I look at it as a treat food. But if you're getting, if you're eating fried food, it's best if it was fried in olive oil, like say when you're, let's say you're on a trip and you get a, a fried artichoke that's been cooked in olive oil. It's a delicious treat that you can get, you know, when you're visiting Italy. Um, that is something that I would not turn down. I think it's a delicious thing to eat, but eating fried food on a regular basis is not what we should be doing for our brains. The other category is pastries and sweets. Now I love sweets. Sweets are part of my brain food pyramid <laughs> that I created, um, but I have a rule when I eat sweets. They can't be processed. They can't be ultra processed. They don't come from a package or a box at the grocery store. Um, you know, they should be made with whole foods. And if you include sugar in a sweet, say like a cookie or a cake, something like that, um, there has to be a lot of fiber. Now, when the food is rich in fiber, it slows down the absorption of, of sugar and how it hits your bloodstream. Because one pathway to Alzheimer's disease or memory problems is a metabolic pathway. We know our bodies become insulin resistant over time, but our brain does too. So that's one of the reasons that fiber is, you know, one of those four Fs. It mitigates the effects of any sugar that we might have in our diet. And let's face it, our diets are not going to be entirely sugar-free, right? Right. It, it, it is tricky. I mean, I, I, I love chocolate and you have a recipe in your book, the salted chocolate and olive oil gelato that, you know, I was definitely intrigued by. You know, there, there are, you do offer sort of sweet toothsome looking recipes in this book too for people who, who who do have a sweet tooth. Absolutely. And one of the other, you know, things on my list is sweet and artificially sweetened drinks as a food to avoid. Well, it's not really even a food, but um, it's so important to avoid consuming sugar in a liquid form. Why? We know Tell that us. Some of the worst food for your metabolic health because it just dumps into your bloodstream really quickly. Um, it's more likely if you have a tendency towards diabetes later in life, it's more likely to elicit an insulin response because your blood sugar goes up rapidly. Most healthy people can handle that, but as you get older, um, then sometimes it's not as easy. And over time, you know, high sugar in your diet especially consumed through sugary drinks can really impact your metabolic health. And it seems it's a component of getting Alzheimer's for many, many people. So when you start to wean off sugary drinks, and I'm putting artificially sweetened drinks in this category too, for another reason, but when you start to wean off these sugary things, your, your palate changes, you start to not expect everything to taste so sweet. So like, if you just come from a normal standard American diet where you're consuming a lot of sugar and you're drinking soda pop or whatever, um, and you have one of my cookies from the book, it's not going to taste all that sweet to you. But if you've been um, weaning off, you know, these added forms of sugar, these refined forms of sugar um, in your life for a month or two, or maybe longer, then these sweets will taste sweet to you, if that makes any sense. No, it totally to makes sense. The way we 
experience sugar and sweets. Um, I tend to use more natural forms of sugar, such as dates or applesauce, honey, maple syrup. Um, sometimes I use coconut sugar, not that it's all that much better than white sugar, but it's got a richer flavor so I can get away with using less of it. And like I said, with all of my all of my baked goods and desserts, there's a lot of fiber in there in the form of whole grain flours or nuts, um, even like ground up nut flour, like almond flour. That only makes the, the dish sometimes more delicious. It actually improves the glycemic index of the food. Yep. We have to reprogram our taste buds. I'm, I'm a little jealous of all the, the nut-based um, uh, dishes that you have in there because one of my three children has a nut allergy, so we have to avoid those. Um, so we're not able to um, to cook with that, but it's it's a wonderful option for people who who do have that that choice. Um, you know, seeds seeds were not a food group in the original studies. I added that when I wrote the book, so I changed the nut nut food group to nuts and seeds because a lot of people are allergic to nuts, especially yes. a lot of our young people. Um, and you can you can access the same brain health nutrients and fats you get from nuts in seeds. So you'll notice in my nuts and seeds chapter, I cook with a lot of pumpkin seeds, sesame seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds. These are super high protein foods too. And they give you flavonoids, they give you fiber. Um, they're delicious. They make they make everything taste better. You have so many wonderful recipes. I mean, everyone needs to check this book out. It's it'll it'll fire up your taste buds, you'll be excited. And the best thing is that it just, you know, when you think about brain healthy cooking, if you're thinking about it, just when you hear that term, you might be thinking, you know, salmon, blueberries, and 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 uh, feeling a sense of scarcity sometimes around your choices. But this book, with its 100 recipes plus, makes clear that there's so many wonderful, delicious, nutritious options out there. It's really exciting. We're going to be heading into our speed round in just one minute, but I want to do a quick switch of gears uh, before we do, I know that you launched the Brain Health Kitchen in 2015, you shared. You published this book relatively recently. It came out in 2023. But your offerings really extend far beyond a cookbook. I would love for you to just share with our listeners who are fired up and excited about making you know, brain-healthy food part of their 2024, what else does the Brain Health Kitchen platform offer? Oh, sure. So the Brain Health Kitchen book launched in January 2023. So it's been a really fun, busy year for me getting the word out about the book. But at the same time I launched the book, I also launched a newsletter on Substack. And the reason for that was there's actually, even though this book is jam-packed with science and recipes, um, we actually could not put more information in this book and keep the trim size on, on task. Um, that I had so much more I wanted to share. There's a lot of science that didn't fit in the book. And so I write twice weekly to my newsletter community on Substack at brainhealthkitchen.substack.com. I write about new studies that come out. I write about new recipes that I'm excited about. I give guides like I just did a, a chocolate guide. There was some information this year about heavy metals that are, you know, contaminating chocolate and different chocolate products. So we went into that. I talk about supplements. I did a supplement guide. You know, are there supplements you should take for your brain health? Are they science-based? Are there ones you should avoid? Um, so I like to be very current with the information I'm giving people. And the newsletter gives me a great platform to do that. So many great resources. I'm checking that chocolate guide out because I love chocolate. Oh, yeah, you and me both. <laughs> All right. Time for our speed round because our time is coming to a close. This is one to two word answers. Are you ready? Yes. 
This brain health pantry staple is always in my grocery cart. Canned beans. I love this brain health superfood. Blackberries. Favorite brain healthy nut. Pistachios. This is my go-to brain health snack. Dates with peanut butter. Love it. Okay, you have a recipe called your new favorite kale salad. What is the secret ingredient that makes this delicious? Oh, I created this recipe for my husband who does not like kale. (laughs) My young adult sons who also don't really love it. Um, So I wanted to make a kale salad that was just really easy because one way to make kale um, softer and easier to chew is by massaging it. So instead I used a blueberry infused dressing where you saute blueberries that can be fresh or frozen um, in a pan with olive oil with some shallots. So it's like a savory take on berry. And then you blend it up and the acidity from the dressing actually really marinates the kale. And so it's a nice salad you can make it ahead of time. And then I add lots of like yummies things in it, like sliced almonds and roasted beets and slivered carrots. So it feels substantial. It, it feels ugh, phenomenal. Phenomenal. I actually have um, shallots and blueberries at home right now, but I'm missing kale. So that may be my supermarket stop on the way home. That sounds delicious. Yeah. And then just add salmon or chicken or shrimp or tofu and you have a whole meal. Love it. All right. Consider adding more of this spice or herb to your brain health culinary toolkit. Uh, cumin. If I could wave a magic wand and take this one product off of the shelves of grocery stores, it would be this item. Coconut oil. Ooh. Ah, I didn't see that coming. All right. And can I ask why? Because it's more than one word, but tell me. People think it's a brain health food, but it's not. It's actually mostly saturated fat. So people consume it thinking they're doing something good for their health, and studies show it actually raises your cholesterol, which we know is a risk factor for Alzheimer's and dementia. Okay, so this is, I'm so happy we had this conversation. All right, finally, your one-word answer to complete this sentence. As I age, I feel. Nourished. Beautiful. This book is full of so many wonderful strategies, recipes, the beverages to drink, to not drink. I also love that you get into recommendations on diversifying your food choices. You even touch on the social and spiritual aspects of sharing meals with family and friends. I so enjoyed it. I can so recommend it. Before we say goodbye, how can our listeners keep following you, your work, and find your book? Oh, well, thank you. This has been really fun to talk about the book and talk about brain health with you, Katie. Um, So the book is available everywhere. It's available online and at many, many indie bookstores. If you want an autographed copy, then there's information on my website to contact my local bookstore. My website is brainhealthkitchen.com. There are 100 free recipes there if you just want to dip your toe into brain-healthy cooking. Um, my Substack is brainhealthkitchen.substack.com. You can find me almost every day over on Instagram at brainhealthkitchen. I share breakdowns of new studies that are coming out. I share recipes. I share tidbits for brain-healthy living. And uh, come say hello over there. Phenomenal. Thank you so much. This has been Dr. Annie Fan, author of The Brain Health Kitchen, Preventing Alzheimer's Through Food. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women who are aging without apology. And before I say goodbye, a quick favor. We are closing in on 200 Apple Podcast reviews. Can you take five minutes to write one and help get us over that number? Did you learn something on today's show? Do you feel smarter, better informed, excited to make one of these recipes? Did you have fun listening? If so, please take five minutes to write or review over on Apple Podcasts. 
Special thanks to Michael Mancini, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time, and until then, age boldly, beauties.